Hello and welcome to the Sacred City Life Podcast. This is your host, Pastor Justin Deem. This podcast is all about helping you follow Jesus in the ordinary, everyday rhythms of life. And today I have my pastoral assistant, Kevin Knorr. Hey, guys. And my deacon of Sacred City Youth, Alex Tate. How's it going, guys? And we're following up. This is a third part in um, looking at this Tim Keller article, and The Gospel Changes Everything, and Gospel Renewal. First week, we laid the theological foundation and the theological framework of how the gospel is continually growing and the Christian's job is not to move on from the gospel, to go deeper into the gospel or to live in line with the gospel. Then last week we talked about how the gospel, some very specific ways that the gospel is meant to change some aspects of our personal life. The way that we relate to sexuality, relationships, um, et cetera, et cetera. Today we're going to jump to the church. How does the gospel change the way the church functions? Mm. And again, we've got these two thieves of the gospel. Remember, thief on the right, thief on the left. We got one, the thief of moralism that tends to take us to a moralistic direction. And we got on the left, the, ten, the thief of relativism that tries to steal the gospel fruit away from us in that direction. We can mm. fall off on either way. The devil doesn't care how we miss the gospel. He just wants us to miss the gospel. Mm-hmm. Okay, So the same, that, that is true for an individual. That's also true for the church. So Keller gives us in this article eight, <laughs> eight different aspects. I'm, we're going to do as many as we can do in about 30 minutes or so, folks. But we want you to go ahead and read this article if you can because it's just great. And it's just... It gives you a lot to think about. And so, um, Kevin, why don't you go ahead and, and start with number one there, the approach to ministry in the world. Yep. Moralism tends to place all the emphasis on the individual human soul. Moralistic religionists will insist on converting others to their faith and church, but will ignore the social needs of the broader community. On the other hand, liberalism will tend to emphasize only moral. Amelioration. Amelioration of social <laughs> conditions and minimize the need for repentance and conversion. Dude, I'm just, hold on. Kevin is a very book smart dude. Kevin is very well read, but <laughs> we got him right there, Alex. We got yeah. him. Well, it took not very years. often. Not, not very, very often. often, but we got him on that word. That's a big word. How many, how many syllables are in there? amelioration. It's a lot, all right? It's a tough word. Six syllables. That's a $10 word right there, brother. So you, we give you grace, all right? Do you know what it means? There's grace. It does. I do know what it means. I do know what it means. Amelioration of social conditions means uh, making them better. All right. So liberalism, all it cares about is helping people live a better life. Okay. Okay? So we go ahead. I'll let you go. The gospel leads to love, which in turn moves us to give our neighbors whatever is needed. Conversion or a cup of cold water, evangelism and social concern. Okay. So what Keller's getting at here is there are some, and I'll just, we could even go right wing, left wing here, okay? Right wing churches oftentimes want to preach the gospel that is only about the conversion of the soul. It's the gospel of believe this and you'll go to heaven when we die or when you die, right? And yet they don't 
serve the needs of the poor. They don't, they're not worried about, you know, soup kitchens and all of, all of the social needs of society. They're mm-hmm. just, who cares? It's all going to hell any, in a handbasket anyways. Let's just get people to heaven. Preach the gospel of that. Yeah. But then you've got left-wing churches, more liberal churches. They've lost the gospel of salvation, mm-hmm. and they've embraced a liberation gospel that all they're interested in doing is feeding the poor. And all they're interested in doing is help ha- hosting after-school programs. Mm-hmm. We've got churches in our city that are mainline historic churches, but now they've been liberalized, and there is no gospel being preached in those churches. All they do is have after-school programs, and they have all of this stuff to help the community. Mm-hmm. And neither one of those approaches are gospel-centered. Right. Mm. Okay, the gospel, and I love the way he says it here. The gospel leads to love, which in turn moves us to love our, to give our neighbor whatever is needed. I love it. Conversion or a cup of cold water. Mm-hmm. Evangelism and social concern. Yeah. Okay? So that the gospel leads us to preach the gospel of salvation to them, but also to meet their needs. And we see this, I talked about this on, uh, a couple weeks back on Sunday about Acts chapter 6, where the apostles were preaching the gospel, getting people saved, getting people in the kingdom, but they were also making sure that the widows were being fed, mm-hmm. right? And they appointed deacons to make sure the deacons were being fed. So, um, of course, just giving someone a cup of cold water um, would meet their needs in the moment, but would not meet their eternal needs. Mm-hmm. And so we don't want to just meet their eternal needs. But James specifically says, what good is your gospel? If somebody says, hey, I don't have enough food to eat, and you say, hey, I'll pray for you. Right. What good is that? Yeah. Prayers don't fill my butt belly, man. Bread fills my belly. Yeah. So buy me a burger mm-hmm. and share the gospel right. with me. You know? At the same time. At the same time. <laughs> how about you sit down, take me out to eat, the same time. buy me a burger, and we'll talk about the gospel, right? And you can say, listen, man, as I filled your belly with that burger... The Lord will fill you soul, your soul with his presence God if you believe good. in the gospel. Right. Boom. There it is. So we don't want to be that um, soul-only church, nor do we want to be that body-only church. We want to be the gospel brings these two things together, mm-hmm. soul and body, right? Eternal salvation with Christ, and we want to meet their needs, whatever whatever those needs we can, right? Okay. Um, Alex, I'm going to let you do this one because I think you might have a little something to say about it. How about how does the gospel change our approach to worship? Number two. You saying because I like to worship? Mm-hmm. All right. Approach to worship moralism leads to the door of summer. Kind to, okay, of. hold on. I got to. That's a word we don't use that word very often. Dower. Moralism leads to a dour and somber kind of worship. Go ahead. Kind of worship that may be long in dignity, but is sh- short in joy. Okay. Hey. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause you. So, because you've brought this up to me many times. Uh, moralism tends to create a worship environment that is somber and focused and serious mm-hmm. and very short on joy. Mm-hmm. Right? 
So people in those situations, they don't really raise their hands. They don't really sing very loud. That they're really serious, right? But but some people may say like that's just the way my personality is. Yeah, well, is that not okay? Um, no, I don't think it is okay. Worship ain't about your personality; it's about mm-hmm. God. And here's the, those people. I hate to say this to all you people. Most of the time, not all the time. Most of the time, that's a lie. I've seen those people yeah. when they get to a college football game. Ooh. Uh-huh. The truth's coming out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've seen those people when they land the biggest deal of their career. Mm. I've seen those people when they have a baby. I've seen those these most serious, somber, focused people. But when they get what they really want, they freak out and they worship and they get yeah. very exuberant. Now, there's some folks that are just, that's them all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay? Let's uh, keep going. A shallow understanding of acceptance without a sense of God's holiness, on the other hand, can lead to a forthy, frothy, frothy, or casual worship. Meanwhile, a sense of neither God's love nor his holiness leads to a worship service that feels like a commit a committee meeting. But the gospel okay, leads... Pause. So we saw the first one. The first one was more formal, more cold... Didn't lead to joy and worship. The second one that kind of, it's kind of disconnects from any sense of formality at all. It's it's a shallow understanding of acceptance without a sense of God's holiness. It leads to a frothy or casual worship. People running around the building, people going crazy, people doing whatever they think they want to do, mm-hmm. people just not really aware of God's standard and what he wants people, how he he wants to be worshipped. Mm. They just—it's a free for all around here. Mm. So, is there is there a sense of what a gospel worship looks like mm. with clapping well, of hands? Or? Let's let's just go ahead and read that last line there. But the gospel, but the gospel leads us to see God is both transcending, transcendent, transcendent, and immunement. Imminent, big words. Transcendent and imminent. Okay, let me define these words. Transcendent. He's far above us. He's holy. He's out there. He's almost untouchable and imminent. He's right here in the spirit. He's mm-hmm. both. Keep mm-hmm. going. His intimacy makes us transcendence comforting while his transcendence makes us imminent. His <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. The gospel leads us to both awe and intimacy to worship for the Holy One is now our Father. Okay. So... When you, if you've ever had to stand before a judge, they literally call him sometimes his eminence, mm-hmm. right? Mm. You stand before a judge and there's a sense of this dude yeah. has my future in his hands. For sure. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> this dude has authority and power that I do not possess. Yeah. Right? And so there's this separateness to him. Mm-hmm. And God is like that. God is holy. He's just. He's away from us. He's perfect. And so there's this sense that we should come to him not how we feel like we should come to him. We yeah. should come to him however he wants to be approached. Right. Nobody walks into a judge, hey, hey, judge, judge, I need to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Judge be like, out of order right now. Right. You know, there's a certain way you have to approach mm-hmm. a judge, right? Same with God, way with God. God has told us in his scriptures a certain way he wants to be approached. He wants to be approached in humility. He wants to be approached in repentance. He wants to be impo- in, approached with our own confession of 
our own inadequacy and sins. Mm. And sins. But God is not just transcendent. He's also imminent. He's right here with us in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. He loves us so much. He gave his son for us. He sent his Holy Spirit in us. So he's now also our father. Mm-hmm. So it would be different to walk into that judge in that courtroom and that courtroom, that judge was your father. Yeah. Right? You would have both and. And that's how the gospel leads us to both awe and intimacy mm-hmm. in worship. For the Holy One is now our Father. So we, this is why at Sacred City, we have a very strange, for most people, worship setting. Um, if you go to a Presbyterian church, you're going to hear all formality. Most of the songs are going to be pretty lame. Yeah. There's Nobody's going to be raising their hands. Nobody's going to be very passionate about it. And I know this is general, general, I'm generalizing here. But then on the other hand, if you go to a charismatic church, people are going to be crazy. They're going to be running around. They're going to be shouting. They're going to be screaming. But there's not any sense of sin. There's not any sense of the holiness of God, uh, that God is to be honored and God is distant and God is um, separate from us in that way. But in our worship setting, you're going to have maybe a song that's kind of serious and then we're going to have a confession and then we're going to have, you know, pastoral welcome and yeah. call to worship of scripture. This is who God is. Then we're going to have some exuberant worship. Then we're going to have a confession of sin that brings us back down to the reality that we are separated from God. And then we're going to worship God again, maybe loud, fun song. Hands are going to be lifted all across the the congregation, then we're going to profess our faith and say, this is who you are and this is what we believe and we're going to sing and we're going to worship. So in our worship setting, we're trying to keep this gospel, the gospel centered. Mm -hmm. We're trying to keep the reality of who we are and the reality of who God is and we're trying to worship him how he tells us to worship. He tells us to worship in confession of sin. He tells us to worship in lifting up our hands in lifting up our voice, in singing a new song, in even lifting up a shout of praise. We're called to do all of those things, and so we're going to do our best to have a worship gathering Mm -hmm. that shows that God is holy, different from us, and yet he's also imminent right here with us. Mm. So so we'll open your eyes to that liturgy and, and the way you broke that down, because from your upbringing, as you said, you were a little bit more, you know, what is it, uh, um, you're a little Charisma- bit charismatic. charismatic in a sense. What, what, what kind of opened your eyes to that? Um, I realized how there were certain things in the scripture that God was calling us to do that we never did. Yeah. We never confessed our sins to one another. Mm. Um, we never really thought much about his holiness mm. and what we looked like in light of him. And I realized how charismatics often... Um, just throw themselves over into emotionalism. Mm. And they're just led by their emotions. They're singing stuff that's not even true sometimes. It's all about how they feel. It's all about how's that bass hit? How's yeah. that drum line hit? Yeah. It's all about just getting it in and dancing and doing what, you, what it's about them. It's mm. about having fun and enjoying what they're doing rather than actually worship God in the God-ordained way. And hey, dancing's okay. David danced nearly till his clothes came off, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that, he did it. But um, most of the time, many times, charismatics worship God um, and they don't really honor his word as mm-hmm. he, it's, we don't believe necessarily in what this, I'm not going to talk about the regulative principle, but 
basically scripture tells us how we need to worship God. Mm-hmm. And we need to read the scripture aloud together. We need yeah. to confess our sins. We need to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. And so that's what we want to do. And we want to keep a level head. We want to um, remain sober-minded yeah. and not give ourselves over to emotionalism. Mm-hmm. And yet, we don't want to give ourselves over to dead, formulaic religion either. Mm. And so... I've seen us over the past 10 years grow in our expressions of worship. We still confess our sins, but now we even confess our sins more, uh, more loudly, more joyfully. You know, we really read it with gusto and a whole lot more people are lifting up their hands and they're worshiping God than they used to. And so I'm encouraged. Now we could always grow in that. We always need to be challenged by it, but that's one way that the gospel is meant to shape the way a church worships. Okay? Don't just give yourself over to whatever's cool in society. Mm-hmm. And don't just become formulaic and dead and rote and dry as a box of bones. Mm-hmm. You know, Don't do either one of those. Okay? Um, Kevin, how about our approach to the poor, the, the church's approach to the poor? Sure. The pragmatist tends to scorn the faith of the poor and see them as a helpless victim needing expertise. This is born out of a disbelief in God's common grace to all. Ironically, the secular mindset also dismisses the reality of sin, and thus anyone who is poor must be oppressed, a helpless victim. Moralists, on the other hand, tend to scorn the poor, scorn the poor as failures and weaklings. They see them as somehow to blame for their situation. But the gospel leads us to Stop. be... Stop. Hold on. This was written 21 years ago. Yeah. 21 years ago, people. Mm -hmm. And it says this, that the pragmatist, or I would say those on the right, tend to scorn the faith of the poor and see them as helpless victims needing expertise. Mm -hmm. So they're there because of, they make bad, they're only poor because they make bad decisions, Mm -hmm. right? This is born out of a disbelief in God's common grace to all. Ironically, the secular mindset also dismisses the reality of sin, and thus anyone who is poor must be oppressed, a helpless victim. That's deep. Bro, 21 (laughs) years ago, and this is what we're dealing with right now in our society. Those on the right, the more moralists, tend to say they're poor because of their decisions. And they're forgetting about the children that grew up in that environment. Now, listen, that child is not poor because of his decision. That po- child is poor because of the parent's decision, right? Or maybe even because, because the parents were oppressed in some way because mm-hmm. that was reality. If a, father's, if a father, let's just say in a minority community, let's just say we go back 40, 50 years ago from now, and an African-American man was, uh, could not, he was fired from his job because he was black, or a black uh, African-American man comes back from war and he was denied the GI Bill, mm-hmm. like many of them were, just because they were black. They're poor because of the sin of the society. Society has has oppressed them. And then that can kind of have repercussions all the way up until today. So do they have personal responsibility for some decisions they made? Have they made some bad decisions that possibly have contributed to their poverty? Probably, absolutely. But it's also because of the society as a whole. But then the liberals on the other side say, 
the only reason they're poor is because they are oppressed. Mm. And it's mm. all society. Society has done it all. And he, the right looks to the left and goes, well, clearly this dude is sleeping around. He's done bad stuff. He's made dumb decisions. He's been in prison. He's made bad decisions. Boom. That justifies their belief that it's all personal decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And then the, the liberals look to the history of racism or whatever it is or social institutions that have been historically racism, and they point to that. And churches can easily fall prey to either one of these dichotomies. Mm -hmm. But what does the gospel say? But the gospel leads us to be humble without moral superiority, knowing that we were spiritually bankrupt but have been saved by Christ's free generosity. We should be gracious, not worried too much about deserving this, since we didn't deserve Christ's grace, and we should be respectful of believing poor Christians as brothers and sisters from whom we can learn. It is only the gospel that can bring people into a humble respect for and solidarity with the poor. Wow. Jesus specifically says, if you give a cup of cold water to one of the least of these, mm -hmm. you've given it to me. Yeah. And so we cannot allow our church to be formed by the right or the moralist understanding mm -hmm. that all poverty is a result of their own personal bad decisions, nor can we be shaved, be shaped by the left or the liberal policy that these people are just helpless victims, you know, floating in the current of society and therefore they have no personal responsibility mm. at all. The gospel shows us kind of a both and perspective, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that because we've been saved by sheer grace and we didn't earn it at all, we didn't get saved because of our personal responsibility, mm. we can actually help the poor even in the midst of some of their failures and faults. And some of them are going to be there not because of their own failure and faults, but because of different, they've been sinned against, right? We don't have to make sure they're deserving of the service that we give them. Right. And we can be respectful of poor believing Christians um, because, and we can learn from them. And I'll let you know, like globally, most Christians are poor Christians. Yeah. Globally. In the United States, we are you know, the, we are the, the minority, globally speaking. Mm -hmm. You know, most Christians are poor. And so um, we, we, we kind of tend to reduce it down to our experience in America. Yeah. But when you think globally, like a Christian in China, a Christian in China might be poor, not because of their personal responsibility at all, not because of any decision they made, but because the government is oppressive, mm -hmm. Right. So their poverty isn't a result of their personal responsibility. So we need to be very careful in our approach to the poor and how the, the church talks about things in relation to the poor. And even, I'm going to use a hot-button issue here, hot-button term, social justice. And by that, I don't mean anything uh, in the, from the secular worldview, anything from critical race theory. I don't mean anything from a Marxist understanding. When I speak of social justice, I mean Christians serving the poor and the least of these in the ways that the Old Testament and the New Testament commands Christians to do. Mm. When I speak of social justice, that's the term I'm using. Mm. Okay? Okay. Um, let's, for our last one, now there's a bunch here, but we're all, this is our last one we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about 
um, how the gospel changes the church's approach to changing culture or social change. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, I'll go ahead and read that for us. We must not forget that Christ is even now ruling in a sense over history. Ephesians 1 tells us this. Colossians tells us this. The already of grace means that Christians can expect to use God's power to change social conditions and communities. But the not yet of sin means there will be wars and rumors of wars. Selfishness, cruelty, terrorism, and oppression will continue. Christians harbor no illusions about politics, nor expect utopian conditions. The not yet means that Christians will not trust any political or social agenda to bring about righteousness here on earth. So the gospel keeps us from the over-pessimism of fundamentalism, moralism, about social change, and also from the over-optimism of liberalism or pragmatism. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that, Kevin? I'm curious, um, what what does it mean that Christ is ruling in a sense over history? So, right now, Jesus Christ is in the throne room mm-hmm. of the universe. Yeah. Okay, He is ruling. I would take I would take out that qualification of in a sense, mm-hmm. but I know what Keller's getting at. Yeah. Christ is ruling in a way that he's bringing about his ultimate plan, but he's not ruling in the same way that he will be okay. ruling in the new heavens and new earth, mm-hmm. right? So in, in this, in this, in this, this is the, the terminology Keller is using that we use a lot around here if you've been around for a while. We are in the biblical, um, oh, big word, eschaton. We are in the end times mm-hmm. that we call it already, not yet. Yeah. Jesus came and he set up his kingdom He's ruling as a king over his kingdom, yeah. and yet he's not. we're not yet in the new heavens and new earth. Mm-hmm. So right now, things, even though Christ is king and Christ is ruling, things are not as they will be mm-hmm. when all evil is eradicated and he's reached the culmination or the consummation of his kingdom. Mm-hmm. Okay, So that's why Keller uses that word. He's ruling now in a sense over history. Okay. He is absolutely ruling over history. Mm-hmm. And yet we're not experiencing the fullness of the kingdom as we will in the new heavens, the new earth, sure. because sin remains, Satan remains, Satan has not been judged, evil remains, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And then, um, he mentions the not yet means that Christians will not trust any political or social agenda to bring the righteousness to earth. How do we speak to brothers and sisters who do trust a political or social agenda to bring righteousness? Well, hold on. First off, what he's doing there, he's not saying one political person or political party is better. He's not saying that one won't be better than the other. Mm. The Christian has a unique perspective on culture and on politics, Mm -hmm. okay? So 
in one view, some people view the gospel has nothing to do with politics. The gospel only has to do with the church. And so just let the world do what they do. Mm. Okay. That was honestly more of a Lutheran understanding of politics. In that worldview, that allowed Nazism to come to power in in Germany because they were just letting him do what he wanted to do. Right. And Mm -hmm. well, guess what Hitler wanted to do? Take over everything and kill every everybody that didn't agree with him, and yeah. even the churches. All right. Now, on the other hand, in the um, Middle Ages, and you know, the church said we're going to take over everything, mm-hmm. and even the kings are going to rule under our ecclesiastical authority, oh. and the church kind of overtook the state, and you got into all kind of abuses of power mm-hmm. there. Because the church basically just became a political power that wanted to expand its kingdom in a way that was similar to the way that Islam teaches the, about the kingdom of God. We'll convert you by sword, yeah. right? But the Reformation brought, a, again, a Reformation to even our understanding of how that the kingdom of God relates with the kingdom of this world. And it, goes, it brought it back to more of an Augustinian model to St. Augustine and his the city of God and with the fall of Rome. He's wrestling with how does this, the state and the church, if we're all under Christ, what does this actually look like? How do we relate to one another? And the Reformed understanding is kind of we have different spheres. Everything is under Christ, and yet until Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom and, consu- and consummates his kingdom, that there's delegated authority to each Mm-hmm. sphere of influence, of influence mm-hmm. right? And so the political and the kingdoms and the state has a sphere and the church has a sphere and the state <clears throat> um, should listen to the church, mm-hmm. right? Like the state should still adopt the morals and the ethics and the values of the church because this is God's revealed will, but the state should not be Christian in the sense that it demands conversion because that's not how Christians work. Right. We have a gospel of free grace, and so the state should allow for religious liberty, religious freedom, because we don't um, coerce anyone into becoming a disciple of Jesus. And therefore, we are not, um, because there is a separation here, we're not, uh, no political party, nor could the church usher in the kingdom of God in finality. Only Jesus can produce the kingdom of God. Even the church, which is full, is part of the kingdom of God. Even the church is not 100% the kingdom of God because there's people in the church who are unconverted. They're Mm -hmm. not a part of the kingdom. Okay. So, so that, that, so what it does is it prevents us from putting too much trust in a political party and thinking that we could, through this political party, usher in the kingdom of God. Right. Okay. Right. That's the so so. Yeah, we want to tell our friends and family that are tempted to trust in a political party to say, "Hey, this political party is fallible. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. broken. Yeah, it's full of sinners. Politics sucks, man. Mm -hmm. Amen. Nearly every politician is in it for their own personal gain. You know, there's very few altruistic politicians. You Mm -hmm. know." They're in it for their gain. They can be swayed by money and donors and all this kind of stuff. And so we want to be really careful to say this political party is the party of the Christians. 
I'm going to be very careful to say that. Because even in that party, there's going to be things that are unchristian. Yeah. Right? So that's what he talks about. So, but then he all, so that's the, so God's kingdom is here, mm-hmm. but God's kingdom doesn't show up in any way that we could actually visibly see. Not even the church. We can't even tell who's saved and who's not saved in the church. Right. So we can never say this political party is the, is, you know, the party of the Christians. We can't. Mm-hmm. But the not yet of sin means there will still be rumors of wars and, and selfishness and cruelty and terrorism and all this kind of stuff. So Christians harbor no illusions that politics nor expect utopian conditions. Now, this is the liberals. The liberals literally, literally right now are trying to usher in their version of utopian, mm. utopia, of just peace on earth. And that will never happen because sin is real. This is a, a perfect example of this <clears throat> is the LGBTQ plus movement that's going on in the Democrat party mainly and the liberals of our society. People use that term like they're all on the same team, mm. like they're all happy. Yeah. Well, specifically the lesbians and the transgenders are not happy. For the most part, they're actually furious at each other because the lesbians believe there's something unique about a woman. There's something, even we would can even say biblical, that women are made in the image of God and there's something unique about being a woman, right? And they're, they're either through their own desires or through their own compulsions, or whatever, or whatever it is, they're choosing to be women and love other women. Okay, now we would say that is a sin. That's contrary to nature. Nature, Romans one talks about it. It's a sin, just like any other sin. Okay, but transgenderism is teaching that men can be women, and the big thing right now is transgender women are women. Transgender women are women. Well, here's the deal: to be a Lesbian is to actually be a woman and to love other women. To be a transgender woman is to be a man who claims to be a woman Mm. and may even love women. I'm confused. Yeah, you're going to be confused because it's confusing. Mm. So basically what that person is, that's a biological male who loves women but thinks he's a woman. Okay, now here's how it gets really confusing. Right now, yesterday, I think it was, Biden's Secretary of Education came out and said, we believe trans women are women and they should they have a right to participate in the sport of their preferred gender. And we're going to push this right through all of our federal schools that we can possibly do. What does that mean? Here's what it means. If you, if you don't understand this, the, the double speak of the people in our country today, here's what it means. Biological men can run girls' track, kick butt, and we're going to support them. Now, think if you're a woman. Think if you're a lesbian woman. That, think if you're a feminist. That is antithetical to everything women have worked for the past 100 years. Men can run. 
So girl sports were created because girls couldn't beat boys for the most part, right? It was not fair for girls to run track against men, right? It wasn't fair for girls to play volleyball against men, all the sports, right? It's not fair, but men are not always, but most of the time, bigger, faster, stronger. So girl sports were created to give women the right to have their own sports and to excel together, right? To compete against one another. Well, now Joe Biden and his secretary of education has said trans women are women. And so dude who believes he's a woman yet has all the testosterone in the world, has shoulders bigger than mine, has a beard thicker than mine, can run against this woman, and we're already seeing it. We've already seen state champions crowned. And I think Massachusetts and different places, there's lawsuits out. Women aren't as fast as men, biologically. They, just, they, they, don't ha- they can't compete like that. And yet they're saying that they have the right. They have a right. I don't know where this right comes from. It's an, it's an invented right from the left. It's, but they have, they believe they have the right to do it. And so even in this LGBTQ thing, we see the lesbians actually aren't in agreement with the trans, transgenders. They're not. It's, it's, a, it's, it's broken. And so we're never going to, the liberals can never usher in this utopia that they promise. There's, there's factions even within their own camp because of what the Bible says, the nature of sin, mm-hmm. right? Sin's always going to produce that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, right? So the beauty here is the gospel prevents us from over-pessimism of fundamentalism. And I, re- I talk to these people all the time. People talk about we were, things are going to hell in the handbasket. They're going down. They're going... Guys, things have been worse. Go back and read... St. Augustine's The City of God. When Rome fell, people really thought it was the end of Christendom. It was the end of the Christian civil engagement with society, right? Guess what? It wasn't. We kept growing, mm. right? There was reformation after that. This, this, we're in a downtown, uh, downturn, but God can still bring revival and bring renewal even to our society today. So don't be overly pessimistic. Let me say it like this. Don't believe everything Fox News tells you. But on the other hand, we also can't believe the over-optimism of liberalism or the over-optimism of CNN. We can't fix all the world's problems, mm-hmm. you know, through wokeness. We can't fix all the world's problem through tolerance. Mm. LGBTQ is an example of that. That group is, itself is a figment of people's imagination, and they are not in alignment with their own values. Mm. It doesn't align with reality. Okay, so in summary, all problems, personal or social, come from a failure to apply the gospel in a radical way, a failure to get in line with the truth of the gospel. All pathologies in the church and all its ineffectiveness come from a failure to let the gospel be expressed in a radical way. If the gospel is expounded and implied in its fullness in any church, that church will begin to look very unique. People will find it both morally convicting, yet compassionate and flexible. 
And that's what we want for our church. We want to be morally convicting. We don't want to go with the flow with any cultural, any cultural mores or, you know, of society. We want to be staunchly scriptural. And yet we also want to be whimsical. We also want to be flexible. We also want to be able to evaluate our own position and say, okay, does this line up with the gospel? Mm-hmm. Or is this just something that I've inherited from my society? So, all right, guys, there it is. Last three, we finished this article. Hopefully you will go and you will read this article in its fullness, contemplate it for your own life uh, and our ministry as well. If you've got any questions, email me, Pastor, or email me, Justin D at sacredcitychurch.com. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. God bless. Mm-hmm.